For those of you who are new, IWP is a graduate school of national security, intelligence, and international affairs. We offer a doctoral program, seven master's degree programs, including two online MAs, and 18 certificates of graduate study. If you are at all interested in learning more about us, please feel welcome to grab myself or another staff member at the conclusion of the event, or visit us at iwp.edu. Uh, to support the work of IWP, please visit us at iwp.edu forward slash donate. Again, that is iwp.edu forward slash donate. Today we'll be hearing from Dr. Enrico Suardi, who will deliver a lecture entitled A Historical Overview of Coercive Persuasion as part of the Behavioral Sciences in National Security and Law Enforcement Lecture Series. Dr. Enrico Suardi, who himself is an alumni of IWP and graduated in the class of 2019 with an executive MA in National Security Affairs, is the Director of Psychiatry at St. Elizabeth's Hospital, Director of Forensic Services at the Ross Center in Washington, D.C., and the 2024-2025 President-Elect of the Washington Psychiatric Society. As a diplomat of the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology in Psychiatry, Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, and Forensic Psychiatry, as well as being a member of the faculty at St. Elizabeth's Hospital, Georgetown University, and George Washington University, he has served as Chief Child and Family Psychiatrist at the U.S. State Department. Dr. Swarty studied political uh, psychology with Gerald Post, completed his MD and a residency in preventative medicine in Milan, Italy, and obtained a Master's of Science in Public Health and Policy from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. With that, please welcome Dr. Swarty. Thank you so much for the introduction and for all your help, Sean. Thank you for being here. Um, today's talk is part of a series of uh, presentations on uh, the behavioral sciences in national security and public safety. Actually, Dr. Gandhi, my colleague, psychiatrist Dr. Gandhi, who sits right here, and I are working on putting together a course for IWP and we hope to be able to offer it in, uh, starting in 2024. But today's topic is the psychology of persuasion and coercion. And I'm going to start out with a, a historical overview of something that uh, different authors have referred to as coercive persuasion, uh, dark persuasion, uh, thought reform, brainwashing, and even menticide, <clears throat> or the rape of the mind. And you can see on these slides books that I've used to, that I reviewed for this, um, <clears throat> for, for this uh, uh, historical uh, overview. In particular, the, the, the book uh, of uh, Dr. Dimsdale, who's himself a psychiatrist, Dark Persuasion. Let me have the next slide, thank you. <clears throat> Well, since long before science became involved in all these, uh, persuasion and coercion have been the realm of uh, uh, philosophy, religion, and, and politics. There's always been a sort of relatively bright side. You know, preachers uh, have proselytized, uh, philosophers have taught uh, rhetorics, you know, how to use words to convince people. Uh, shamans have uh, uh, used hypnotic suggestion to, uh, to uh, foster healing. But there's also been a, a, a dark side to this uh, because uh, uh, the power uh, players 
have uh, always used uh, uh, coercion and even torture to enforce uh, their rule. In so we're moving quickly to uh, modern times, and we're going to the Soviet Union, and it's 1924, and we're in Leningrad. And uh, the uh, September 1924, the Neva, that is the, the river of Leningrad, has flooded. And uh, we are in the basement of the Institute of Experimental Medicine. And the dogs that are the subjects of the experiments uh, are, are kept in cages in this institute. And so they're stuck in their cages, and the water is rising, and they're terrified. Uh, eventually, a, a handler shows up and rescues them, just in times that they don't drown. But after that day, the dogs would not be the same. Their behavior changes and, and uh, never goes back to, to baseline. Now, this is no ordinary uh, uh, laboratory. It's the laboratory of Dr. Ivan Pavlov. Um, Dr. Pavlov is nothing less than a Nobel Prize winner at that point. He won the Nobel Prize for Physiology in 1904 for studies on digestion. But Dr. Pavlov is better universally known as the person who discovered classical conditioning, who described classical conditioning as, as a way to um, learn automatically. Now, <clears throat> five years before the, uh, this flood, um, and you know what it did to these dogs. Um, Lenin went to visit uh, Ivan Pavlov in his uh, in, in his um, uh, laboratory. Uh, that's two years after Lenin had taken powers, and uh, uh, and that was not just a courtesy visit. Lenin had some questions for for, for Pavlov. Uh, wanted to know if uh, his studies could help uh, the communists engineer the, the new man. Um, and, and Pavlov told him that under certain circumstances, uh, behavior can be changed in a lasting way, <clears throat> overcoming hereditary factors. Now, five years later, uh, Pavlov learned from the uh, experience of these dogs and, and the flood. And what he derived from that was a theory of traumatic disintegration. Then, then he went on to test in psychiatric patients that he had access to, thanks to Lenin. And so what he, what he came to realize is that um, people, who, uh, individuals who are, who are severely traumatized can be very suggestible. Now, the communists remained in, interested in, uh, in his work. Um, you can see, I think, here uh, a the obituary of, of the Pravda when he died. Um, uh, and uh, uh, and they, they were interested in, in, uh, in, in how he, he could help them you know, create a new communist stand. Um, uh, the, the, now enter here Stalin and Stalin's purges and the uh, court trials, the show trials, right? And so what uh, observers uh, were, were impressed with was the way, uh, and we can move to the next slide, thank you, was the way the, the people put on trials would, uh, uh, instead of trying to defend themselves, would incriminate themselves. 
and seemed to be eager to incriminate themselves and came up with confessions that were uh, seemed to be obviously false. Um, and so, uh, and so, observers, you know, from other countries. Uh, began to suspect and think that the, that the communists had come up with some, some new te techniques to alter people's mind, to, uh, to extract confessions, and so forth. But what they were really doing was, uh, you know, using the old techniques of the Xarist uh, uh, police uh, with uh, the insights, with adding the insights that they have from uh, Pavlovian studies. Um, about, uh, about traumatic disintegration under conditions of, of, of severe deprivation um, and the use, you know, meticulous use of reward and punishment. We can move on. Thank you, Sean. Um, well, I'm moving from uh, communist Russia to communist China. And we are now in 1950. Um, and uh, an American journalist, Edward Hunter, who was, um, who was a propaganda expert in the uh, OSS um, in, uh, during, during the war, uh, is, um, is um, a foreign correspondent uh, at that point in Asia. And he's, uh, he's covering the Maoist indoctrination. He's um, you know, writing about that. And he coins a new term, at the time new term, brainwashing. Brainwashing has become uh, you know, spread and, and, and has, uh, um, you know, has, has taken a life of its own. Uh, but it was coined in 1950 by Edward Hunter, um, who calls brainwashing the intense indoctrination uh, that the Chinese communists have uh, devised. Now, this term uh, comes from uh, the Chinese jinao, which means, brain, uh, no, wash the brain. Um, and the, the metaphor of Jinao has a long history in, in, uh, in, in China. It comes from Jijin, uh, which means, you know, wash the heart. And that is, uh, that is a concept that is common in the Confucian, uh, Buddhist, uh, Taoist traditions. And, uh, and it has to do with the rectification, with purification of oneself. Right? Um, now, the, the, the Chinese communists never referred to their indoctrination process as, uh, as brainwashing. They call it thought reform. Um, and the, the, the Chinese started you know, uh, creating this systematic thought reform techniques in the 1920s, where there weren't many, very many of them. It was the revolutionary you know, phase of their history. And it was key for them to um, you know, to, to, to convince people that they would, they would capture, right, you know, soldiers of the Kuomintang and so forth, and to have them join uh, their forces. And so they came up with a system uh, in which they, they uh, provided unexpected leniency to their captives. Um, and they actually would encourage them to vent their frustrations against the their, their authorities, their past authorities. Um, and there were terms for, for this. It was a sequence, uh, systematic uh, of, 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 um, of actions. Uh, and uh, 
Um, and so uh, eventually they would offer the, the captives the opportunity to join the heart movement after they had vomited bitter water, after they had uh, been digging the bitter roots. Now, the, the, thought, uh, the thought reform becomes uh, more sophisticated in subsequent years, um, and there is a, a program designed for intellectuals, so more cultured people. And this is part of the, the uh, ideological effort that results in the consolidation of the Mao Zedong uh, thought as party dogma. And so by the 1940s, we have the definitive form of this thought reform process that has acquired a, uh, a, a, an ideological enthusiasm and a dogmatic quality uh, that are actually not uh, consistent with that uh, Confucian Chinese tradition that, you know, where the, the, the sage is actually restrained and quietly wise, right? Here, this, there is this ideological enthusiasm to which uh, individuals are expected to surrender. But that's what the, that's what the uh, American POWs will face in the Korean War. Um, um, it's a, it's a well-orchestrated uh, spectrum and sequence of uh, uh, lenient and coercive manipulations uh, overwhelming pressure that comes from the, the group, because that's what really the Chinese add, uh, the, the, the group pressure in, in struggle sessions. Um, so, and the, the goal here is to have the individual um, metaphorically die, the old self, so that they can be reborn as a new self, as a communist uh, self, right? And this will result in, uh, you know, false confessions, false confessions about germ warfare, for example. Um, and, you know, some of these POWs will decide to not return home because, as uh, Edward Hunter put it, they were brainwashed, right? Or because, uh, as, as the, the Chinese communists would say, they were reborn as communists and, and so thought reform. Can we have the next slide? All right, I'm going to go back a little bit here to Europe and to the early 40s. And here we have, again, these this show trials, you know, Stalin's show trials, Vyshinsky, the, the chief prosecutor. And, uh, and the Nazi uh, Germans, you know, see this, and uh, they, uh, they think that the, the, the Soviet Union has found a way to, you know, some, some kind of truth serum, right? And, uh, um, and they, they go about finding uh, their, own, uh, their own shortcut uh, to, uh, you know, uh, to do coercive persuasion, right? They don't care that much about that long-term psychological trauma disintegration. They want drugs that do the job quickly. And they look at the uh, drugs in obstetrics and psychiatry for this purpose, you know, interrogation, right? And also, they, they start experimenting with mescaline, which is you know, a natural occurring um, uh, hallucinogenic substance. And they do this in the concentration camps, among many other atrocious experimentations, as we well know. Uh, some of them will be put on trial uh, in Nuremberg for, for, for those actions. 
not among them perhaps the most infamous, you know, uh, Joseph, Joseph Mengele, who, you know, died apparently natural death much later in um, South America. Can we move forward? So um, in the meantime, in, meantime, in, the, in the West, uh, uh, in, in, um, uh, in Britain, uh, a, a psychiatrist, uh, Dr. Horsley, devises a new intervention that he calls narcoanalysis. Narcoanalysis is psychotherapy, you know, psychoanalysis um, uh, uh, combined with intravenous administration of barbiturates. Um, and uh, this, the purpose is, is, is clinical, is, is, is treat, to treat trauma. But already in 1943, the uh, Office of Strategic Services in the United States convenes a panel to study the possibility of using drugs to interrogate prisoners of war. And the group is chaired by no less than the, the superintendent of St. Elizabeth's Hospital, where I work, uh, at the time Dr. Overholzer includes academics, includes intelligence personnel, and it goes on to propose, approve the, 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 the testing of various substances for the purpose of interrogation. Um, eventually, in 1943 also, there is the, the discovery by Albert Hoffman of the uh, hallucinogenic properties of LSD. And LSD will become the drug of choice for this type of experimentation. Now, the context here is that the, the, <clears throat> the U.S. Is, is winning the war, the, the, the World War II, but, you know, it, it, it is clear that there will be another global confrontation. And, you know, there is another very insidious and totalitarian uh, adversary, the Soviet Union. And so both the U.S. and, and the, the Soviet Union um, have an uh, in sort of parallel operations to um, hire, to, to get the, the German scientists, uh, some, of, some of the German scientists. Now, the majority of the scientists were involved in a rocket uh, program of, of the Nazi, but some of them were involved in this, uh, you know, let's say, um, bi biochemical research um, of, of drugs for interrogation. Um, and in 1947, the, the, the U.S. government launches a, a secret uh, uh, program uh, for, for this purpose again. Initially, it's defensive, but then it acquires an offensive uh, side. Um, it goes through different iterations, different names. Um, perhaps the most, uh, the, the best known name is MKUltra. MKUltra was nothing but a covert funding program for research and development of, uh, of chemical, biological, and other materials that could be used in, in, in operations to control human behavior, uh, approved in 1953 by the then director of Central uh, Intelligence, Alan Dulles. Um, this program uh, is in existence for about 10 years and uh, ends up uh, funding over 100 projects, some of which have to do with uh, you know, projects conducted in universities, pharmaceutical companies, hospitals, prisons. Um, and in some, of, uh, some of these includes the administration of psychotropic drugs, mainly LSD, to unwitting subjects in normal life settings. 
Now, in 1963, the Inspector General of the CIA you know, takes a, a, a close look at this and concludes that this is unethical, this is the state fall, and it has to end, and it ends the next year. Um, to my knowledge, this has been referred to as the Manhattan Project of the Mind, but there were, to my knowledge, no real scientific breakthrough. Um, you know, no you know, truth serum was, was found, no recruitment deal was uh, devised, right? And uh, instead, there were victims. And, uh, you know, the, the, perhaps the best known case is the case of Dr. Uh, Olson, uh, Frank Olson, who was a scientist um, and who was surreptitiously sort of, sort of given uh, LSD in 1953 and died days later by suicide. Um, and so here we have President Ford, and now this comes up, as it always happens, right? So uh, in the 1970s, all this comes up, there is an uproar, and here we have President Ford apologizing officially to, to the family who also sued and, and uh, you know, uh, certainly had their, um, their day in court. Um, so um, the actually there was no day in court because there because there was uh, you know they, they were paid. Um, yeah. So um, can we have the next? Uh, so a, a sort of very different approach and arguably, I mean certainly ethical and arguably effective to counter the the effect of brainwashing torture is the SEER training. Um, special evasion, resistance, and escape. It was really born out of the suffering of the prisoners of wars in in, in, uh, Korean, in, in Korean War, uh, and it was developed uh, by a working group uh, that was established by President Eisenhower. The purpose was to train service members to cope with the stress of captivity. It was implemented fully in 1961 under the aegis of the U.S. Air Force, has been in existence since, has grown. Um, and uh, uh, and uh, psychologists are, uh, have been involved in running the program as a realistic stress laboratory to enhance performance under severe stress. So, next slide. So, you know, between the Fair to say that between the 1920s and 1960s, you know, governments and uh, government-funded uh, entities such as universities and others have tried to develop tools for and against brainwashing for political and military reasons. But you know, the what what's been seen, as far as I know, as far as I can tell from the readings, is that. You know, again, no, no, no great achievements here uh, uh, can, can be described. Uh, no, no truth uh, serum, no recruitment deal. Um, and of course, you know, group pressure, you know, psychological coercion, psychological torture, you know, uh, uh, deprivation, uh, coupled with the, this mix of reward and punishment, does break down most people, um, and, uh, but, but, uh, but, you know, that doesn't really produce reliable information because a lot of false confessions are elicited and also people are left traumatized. So 
they're essentially of no use for whoever does that. But if the, the goal is to break down, brainwash, that, that certainly can happen, and it's nothing new, right? Now, um, with the 1970s, uh, uh, new players, new actors that are non-state um, entities enter this uh, sort of, you know, dark game of coercive persuasion, including uh, criminal and terrorist groups and cults. And I have some examples here of, of that. Starting from the, the, the Stockholm Syndrome, sure you're further familiar with. And uh, that's, that's not a clinically recognized diagnosis, but there is some literature in some of, of this in, in the PTSD uh, literature as a, as a variant. And, and, and it originates from what happened in 1973, August 1973 in Stockholm. There was a bank robbery, and the, the, the robber uh, didn't just want to uh, you know, rob the bank, uh, wanted to um, have hostages and then negotiate with the authorities the release from prison of a body of his. So a criminal, essentially, with, with, with that kind of a plan. And this becomes an ordeal of five, six days. You know, the prime minister of, of Sweden is involved himself in, in, a, in a negotiation. But what happens in those days, and that's, that's surprising, you know, to, to many, is that the, 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 the captives, the hostages, become sympathetic towards the, the captor and distrustful of authorities. And, uh, uh, and, and that's not because the, the captor was trying to brainwash them or convince them. Uh, that, was, uh, that was not his intention. Uh, it was a spontaneous thing that happened in a context of a, 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 a situation that is so coercive and, and dangerous and uh, leads to a state of regression uh, to sort of early childhood. So the little children, the, the adults who become little children psychologically dependent on these uh, sort of, you know, uh, dysfunctional uh, parent dystopian, in, in this dystopian situation, you know, they, they uh, become sympathetic towards them. And that's what, uh, that's what the person who actually then uh, went on to develop the FBI hostage crisis negotiation program in the 1970s um, uh, said about this situation. So that's the Stockholm Syndrome. Can we have the next slide? So uh, a year later, 1974, there is another bank robbery. This time we are in, uh, in San Francisco, in the US. Um, and uh, you know, if, uh, if Stockholm Syndrome is the term you know, created by the media in 1973, flash conversion becomes popular in, in, in 1974. And it's, it's a mix of Stockholm Syndrome and brainwashing. This is the case of Patricia Hearst that you may have heard about. Fisher Hearst, the heiress of a, 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 a family of media tycoons. Um, uh, at that time, 19, uh, an undergrad student at Berkeley, she's violently kidnapped by a group um, called Symbionist Liberation Army. This is a revolutionary, small revolutionary uh, group, one of actually a number of, of these groups that were active in the Bay Area at that time. Um, so their, their plan is to 
get a huge ransom and redistribute to the poor. So they, they want to uh, get a lot of publicity and become the Robin Hood of, of, of their time. Right? And, uh, and, and, and that's what happens. The family starts paying ransom in the form of massive donations um, of food you know, in various neighborhoods. This goes on for a couple of months. Uh, meanwhile, they sent out these uh, uh, recordings of uh, Patricia, who initially is terrified, um, and then you know, appears to be sort of reading or regurgitating uh, propaganda material that they have given her. Um, but after two months, they, they have enough of this, the SLA, right? They think they have accomplished what they wanted. And so at that point, they decide to not kill the hostage. They tell her, you know, you like the pet chicken, you know, people like you, we don't want to, you know. So you, you can either leave and go back to whatever you want or join us and change completely your life. And she joins them. And uh, uh, she changes her name. And that's the, the bank robbery of uh, 1974 in San Francisco, where she is involved. Um, you know, she, she makes the, the FBI wanted list. Um, and uh, um, and uh, in 1975, she, she's apprehended. Um, after a few weeks in custody, she denounces the whole thing and said, I was, I've been terrified the whole time, I've been brainwashed, right? So the case goes to court, expert for the defense says this is, you know, quintessential brainwashing. Expert for the, uh, for the prosecution says, no, this is a, a born rebel who found in a dystopian way a cause, right? And she has actually found, she's found guilty, she's sentenced. Um, a few years later, President Carter uh, lets her free before the end of her sentence. And uh, President Clinton, on the last day of his, of his presidency, pardons her. Um, I, I have a video, um, but I don't know, how do we time? Perhaps we... We can skip this, but what's interesting, and these videos are on, you know, online on YouTube. Um, what's interesting is to hear how she changes, you know, in those months. The flash conversion, right? Um, and uh, how she endorses the lifestyle, the position, the uses the ideologically charged jargon, and uh, you know, call herself. Tanya instead of, of Patricia, you know, uh, this is her boyfriend and, and so forth. But we can move on, I think. Um, all right, so now I want to talk about uh, uh, cults as well, because uh, that uh, they're also part of the landscape at this point. Um, 1978, um, November 19, 1978, Congress approves has approved a fact-finding mission um, to sort of go and find out what's going on in the jungles of Guyana, where, uh, where a, a group, a congregation led by Reverend, so-called Reverend Jim Jones, um, uh, is leading you know, almost a thousand people has created, you know, they, have, they are creating a community of their own but they, you know, they, 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 they moved from California to, to Guyana, 
and of course, you know, the families are extremely worried. And so Leo Ryan, a congressman, leads this fact-finding mission. They arrive, things go tragically. Um, uh, they, he is killed, Leo Ryan. Um, others uh, in, uh, are killed by the, the followers of, of, of Jim Jones. Um, you know, the chief of staff will survive. She'll become a, a, a congresswoman herself uh, later on. Uh, but, uh, uh, but that day, Jim Jones decides to go ahead with a, a, a plan that he has had for months. Uh, that is the mass suicide, the revolutionary mass suicide of, of his congregation. Over 900 people drink a mix of Kool-Aid and the cyanide prepared by the doctor of the mission, uh, of, the, of the congregation, and die. Men, women, children, um, it takes hours for this to happen. It's all on tape. Um, and, you know, maybe, maybe we can hear a little bit uh, his, some of his last speech and, uh, and how people reacted. Maybe just a minute. So this gives you just a, you know, a taste of, of this tragedy. Um, he, he, he had become increasingly paranoid. He was addicted to a cocktail of, of drugs. And, you know, you, there's a lot that's been written about this case. You may know that. Well, about 20 years later, another cult, uh, 1997, this is, the, this is the Heaven's Gate group, um, the, led by Marshall Applewhite, who went by the name of Poe. Um, so about actually not about, 39 members uh, of, of the group are found in a house in a sub, sub found dead in a, in a, in a house in a, in a suburb of San Diego. Now, Bo was a, a, a new age preacher, had you know, preached around the country uh, for, for, for years, eventually had formed this group. Um, and uh, so what, what these people believe, uh, really believe, uh, was that uh, uh, there was a, an, another life, an extraterrestrial life, uh, and that uh, if, they, if they kill themselves, kill themselves, but they didn't think they were killing themselves, they would be teleported to a space uh, ship and, uh, and start a, a, an eternal life uh, extraterrestrial. Um, and uh, uh, in, in 1997, there was a, a comet, particularly luminous comet, uh, Hale-Bob comet, that was visible, you know, in, in California. And so uh, they, there was this, uh, uh, this theory that behind the comet was hiding this huge spaceship, right? That the appearance of the comet had to do with, with the arrival of the spaceship. These people believed it uh, entirely. You know, Marshall Applewhite uh, had convinced them, and so they they thought they were they were going for this wonderful eternal life, and they left. Uh, this is already internet age. They posted messages. They left uh, 
a lot of, um, uh, you know, for, 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 for the public to know that nobody had forced them, they were happy, that there was no anger, and so forth. You know, but what happens here is that he had given them the instrument as one of these people who did not, you know, go on to, to, uh, to commit suicide, said he had given them the, the persuasive instruments to brainwash themselves, right? Uh, there's a video here, but maybe we can skip it in the interest of time. All right, now psychologists have studied uh, persuasion um, and coercion for decades. Um, there are some seminal studies. I have three here, three videos that I will, I will show in part. We will show in part um, that, uh, um, that are about studies conducted in 1950s, 1960s, early 1970s um, about social influence. So they're pretty self-explanatory, so maybe we can start this one and maybe I'll add some comments later. An experiment is not a public opinion poll. It examines behavior under the pressure of social forces, as the experiment of Solomon Ash reveals. The experiment you'll be taking part in today involves the perception of lengths of lines. As you can see here, I have a number of cards, and on each card there are several lines. Your task is a very simple one. You're to look at the line on the left and determine which of the three lines on the right is equal to it in length. All right, we'll proceed in this order. Only one of the people in the group is a real subject, a fifth person with a white t-shirt. The others are confederates of the experimenter and have been told to give wrong answers on some of the trials. The experiment begins uneventfully as subjects give their judgments. Two, 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 three, 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 three. But on the third trial, something happens. Two. 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 <laughs> the subject denies the evidence of his own eyes and yields to group influence. Ash found subjects went along with the group on 37% of the critical trials. What he found through interviews. So, you know, it's obvious, you know, what is that the answer, right? But uh, the, the pressure, you know, of uh, conforming to the majority is such that over a third of these uh, subjects, healthy subjects, you know, um, you know, um, cave in and, and conform. Now, interestingly, um, you know, if only one person at the other five gives the, the right answer, that percentage goes down from 37% to 5%. So having another person dissenting from, you know, that allow, allows the, that person to, to tell like it is, you know, to say what they have really seen. Huh? To move on to the next seminal experience, where, where, you know, this was done at Swarthmore um, in 1950s, series of experiments. Now we have, 19, in the 1960s, Stanley Milgram at Yale, and let's see, you know, a few minutes of this. When I learned of incidents such as the massacre of millions of men, women, and children perpetrated by the Nazis in World War II, how is it possible, I ask myself, that ordinary people 
were courteous and decent in everyday life, could act callously, inhumanely, without any limitations of conscience. Now, there are some studies in my discipline, social psychology, that seem to provide a clue to this question. I want to say it was a little different, but a little bit further. It was the issue of authority. Under what conditions would a person obey authority who commanded actions that went against conscience? These are exactly the questions that I wanted to investigate at Yale University. It is May 1962. An experiment is being conducted in the Elegant Interaction Laboratory at Yale University. The subjects are 40 males between the ages of 20 and 50, residing in the greater New Haven area. Psychologists have developed several theories to explain how people learn. One theory is that people learn things correctly and they get punished for making a mistake. Forty years later, Milgram's infamous experiment in obedience is still taught in classrooms around the world. All right, Pete, would you take the test and you see it in front of the shock generator, please, in the next room? But the experiment was rigged. The victim was an accomplice of the experiment. The victim, according to plan, provided many wrong answers. His verbal responses were standardized on tape, and each protest was coordinated to a particular voltage level on the shock generator. Now, as a teacher, you were seated in front of this impressive-looking instrument, the shock generator. Its essential feature is a line of switches that goes from 15 volts to 450 volts, and a set of verbal designations that goes from slight shock to moderate shock, strong shock, very strong shock, intense shock, extreme intensity shock, and finally XXX, danger severe shock. Your job, the experimenter explains to you, is a word pair test. If he gets each answer correctly fine, you move on to the next pair. But if he makes a mistake, you're instructed to give him an electric shock, starting with 15 volts. And you increase the shock one step on each error. That is incorrect. It's going to be 195 volts. The learner was hidden from the teacher by a politician. Of course, this is all a simulation. Nothing is really happening. But the learner made very convincing sounds of pain as the shocks increased. This will be at 3.30. And Wilbur found, surprisingly and rather horrifyingly, that the majority of people would actually go right to the very highest level if there was some pressure from a man in a white coat who said... Because you, you, you get it. Now, this is regular people, healthy people, they will give a shock that could be that could be fatal to 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 somebody because and not because they've been threatened or or you know paid for this um, uh, because somebody with with a white coat is the scientist tells them this is what needs to be done for for the for the purpose of this experiment so obedience the last uh, video I have on this series is come from nineteen. Uh, 71 study, the, the, the Stanford Prison Experiment. This is a study that was uh, supposed to last two weeks, had to be interrupted after five days uh, because the conditions became unsafe. Now here, the difference is that uh, everybody knows that this is a simulation. All the subjects know that this is a simulation. And it, it's done in the basement of the Institute of Psychology, Stanford University. And, and the, the, the subjects that are male 
students are divided between you know guards and, and prisoners. So they have to act like guards or, or prisoners. So the first day, it's awkward. Nobody really knows what. By the second day, the prisoners are provocative. The guards re react by being coercive, increasingly coercive. By the fifth day, uh, this, the, the studies, uh, you know. And, and the, the chief, uh, you know, here is, is uh, Zimbardo, who acts as the warden. But he's kind of hands-off warden. He doesn't tell them what to do. He doesn't tell them where, where the limits are, right? So maybe we can hear, uh, see a minute of this and then move on. Starting from the 1970s, uh, also um, a social psychologist, uh, Dr. Cialdini, began studied uh, what, what, he, what he calls ethical persuasion, um, social influence ethical persuasion. He went undercover and worked in, a, you know, um, as a car salesman, as a, as a marketing person, you know, various various jobs. He was really doing his research, but he was. He didn't tell anybody. And so in, in 1984 or 5, he published what became what has become a huge bestseller. Um, and you see that right there, the psychology of, of persuasion. Um, and he, among other things, has uh, you know, come up with six principles uh, of, of social influence that are you know, studied in, uh, this, is all, this is all studied in business school, marketing, and so forth. And you know the, the principles are things like reciprocity. Uh, or, uh, you know we feel obligated to repay others if we receive something. Uh, scarcity, if, if uh, we value things that are rare, difficult to obtain. Um, authority, uh, we are more likely to follow uh, uh, those who appear credible, knowledgeable. Uh, consistency. If we have done something, we tend to do it again, right? So if we if we have a, had a commitment, we will continue to have that commitment. Maybe you know, maybe donate more next time, right? So um, and so forth, right? So the, the research of of, uh, of Dr. Saldini is is um, also seminal. Um, you know, coming to more recent times, I, I picked. Uh, you know, um, one study here, and really this is about this is about uh, showing how 
uh, if people who are uh, good at persuading others are also good at mentalizing, mentalizing the theory of mind means being attuned to the mental states of others. Once, you know, one's own mental states and the mental states of others. And having uh, the, the flexibility, cognitive, emotional flexibility to, um, to adjust the strategies based on how the mental state of the other person, you know, changes. Now, neuroscientists, there's also been brain research on, on, on persuasion, you know, how the brain works uh, when, uh, you know, persuasion is at work. And, and here, what we, what, what we find is the, what is found uh, by researchers is a complex interplay between uh, uh, areas of the brain that are in charge of cognitive and emotional processes. So uh, brain regions, they are involved in tension, memory, and emotion processing, um, you know, so the, the making of plans, the evaluation, the execution of plans, and then the, the memory processing, the emotional processing. Um, we can move on. Um, our coercion is also studied by uh, neuroscientists. And uh, here it's, it, I find it interesting that you know there are there is some research that suggests that uh, uh, the sense of agency that we experience when we are uh, coerced to do something that goes against our our preference, right, and, and harm others, is reduced. So we, in other words, you know, we feel we can feel less responsible because. Our actions are perceived as sort of sort of passive movements rather than you know volitional things. Um, but there is also research suggesting that actually this emotional distancing from the action that harm others can happen only if we endorse the action, only if we are willing willing participants, right? And so we can resist coercion. Um, now. And resistance to coercion is also, uh, you know, is also subject of research. And I picked a study that I find interesting um, uh, because it identifies, um, um, it uh, uses a construct called reactance. Reactance is resistant to coercion. And, and finds that the underpinnings of reactance uh, are cognitive and emotional. Cognitively, it's the counter-arguing, the, the coming up with arguments against the arguments of the coercive entity. And emotion is anger, and anger leads to re retaliation. Right? So uh, you know, counter-arguing and anger uh, as uh, underpinnings of, uh, of resistance to, um, to coercion. We can move on. So we're, we're in the 21st century, and uh, you know, cognitive warfare is ongoing. The battle for the mind, the battle for the brain. Uh, a, a white paper of, of NATO uh, talks about the brain, the mind, the human mind as the sixth domain of operation. Right? There is there is land, there is sea, there is air, there is. Um, space, there is cyber, and then there is a sixth domain of operation that is that is the mind, right? Uh, the question is, you know, 
uh, is it really a new domain of operation or has always been the, the, perhaps the most important domain of operation since when you know, Sun Tzu uh, you know, wrote about winning without war, um, a, a concept that was echoed by Dr. Linchewski in a paper published last year. Right? Um, so, you know, an introduction to cognitive warfare here would require a whole other conversation, but suffice to say that, you know, we're in a digital age, uh, the age of artificial intelligence, of uh, machine learning, of data mining, and we spend so much time online and so much can be known about us, right? Our, our, um, we work, we study, we socialize, um, you know, and everything can be tracked and everything, all this data can be, can be mined, right? And so the, 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 this, this can be, this information, this data can be used for political need, and it is used for political intelligence, military purposes, with the time of this, this information that can be very, very um, you know, precise and sophisticated, right? So one aspect of cognitive warfare in, in the 21st century is really and the, 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 so this sophisticated disinformation, how to counter it, right? And to how to ethically persuade others using these means. The other is, the, you know, the other aspect that I think is important here is the, is the, the evolution of neuroscience and neurotechnology, you know, that quest to find, you know, uh, tools, uh, devices, you know, uh, drugs, that can alter people's mind the way that we want has never ceased to exist. And now neuroscience and, and neurotechnology offers uh, ways to do this that are, that are certainly more sophisticated. Um, you know, there is an um, author, a psychologist, ethicist at, at Georgetown University, Dr. Giordano, who has written extensively about this. And it's important to say that he's also an ethicist, so he's trying to find ethical way to go about this so that we can stay apace, we can stay you know, ahead of our strategic competitors, so you see how China is active in, in this area, um, and, and, but in an ethical way, right? And so in, in, in conclusion, you know, I just want to emphasize this ethical persuasion here, uh, the ability to mentalize, to understand what uh, others uh, think and feel uh, you know, this goes with the concept of strategic empathy that I mentioned at the end of my last con uh, um, conversation um, here. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and also I want to emphasize that knowing others, but also knowing ourselves, what we stand for, our, our values, you know? and, and our, 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 um, our passion for freedom, you know, the freedom of um, the, the freedom of expression, the freedom of worship, the freedom from want, the freedom from uh, fear. Eh? I want to end on this, freedom for fear. So ethical persuasion, not the coercion that, uh, that, the, that brainwashes, that destroys psychologically others, makes them useless, you know, if you want to use them in the future, and, and, really, and, and really produces a lot of false information or a false confession. So I'm ending on this note. Thank you so much. There was one other slide, but you know, it's, it's the, about the work that DARPA, IARPA do on, on, uh, uh, on these matters.
Uh, and in the interest of time, we can only take one question in our formal Q&A, but if you have questions for Dr. Swarty afterwards, I'm sure you will be happy to uh, answer in the lobby. So do we have any questions? Uh, yes, my name is Cornelia Weiss. Thank you very much. This has been fantastic. And would you tell us what DARPA is doing? I'm quite curious. Well, can we have the, the last slide, Sean? Um, so, for example, they're, they're working on uh, research programs related to persuasion, um, utilizing artificial intelligence, machine learning, to analyze how social networks work. Um, to understand how individuals and groups are influenced by messages that uh, uh, they receive in, on social media and, and online, and, and to essentially counter this information and improve resilience, improve resilience to influence, right? When I, when I say let's cherish our freedom, you know, that's, that's how we become resilient against, uh, you know, disinformation. Uh, there are also uh, neuroscience, neurotechnology studies uh, conducted by DARPA and IARPA. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting that there, there has been a, something that has a very long name, National Research Council's Ad Hoc Committee on Military and Intelligence Methodology for Emergent Neurophysiological and Cognitive Neuroscience Research. I really had to read this. No. That, that, that this long, this, this huge committee, or I don't know if it's huge, but has a big name, uh, you know, met in 2008, you know, produced a report, and at that point they said, no, 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 neuroscience and neurotechnology, very interesting stuff, but we're not ready for this stuff. You know, there is no application in uh, political, in, in, um, in uh, military intelligence. Six years later, 2014, uh, same, same, same setting, same committee, well, and neuroscience and technology has matured a lot and uh, is being considered, in some cases evaluated, considered evaluated, so this seems to be official terms, right? For operational use, operational use, right? That's 2014, we're in 2023, so uh, this is happening. You know, I, I don't have the latest, but it's happening. But, but that's where the ARPA and IARPA are also at. Let's give another hand to Dr. Sorry. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dr. Sorry. Sure. So, let me give you this. Yes. And thank you, everybody, for joining us today. Uh, if you are interested in learning more about us, attending any future events, or making a gift to IWP, please feel welcome to visit us at iwp.eu. And before we close out, we would also like to announce our upcoming gala, which is affectionately entitled From IWP with Love, an Evening of Espionage. The event will be hosted on Thursday, October 26th at the International Spy Museum. Tickets are currently available at iwp.edu forward slash events. Thank you again, and we hope to see you there.